Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. Today, instead of discussing a new book, I'm convening a New Books in African American Studies roundtable to discuss with two early career historians about their recent transitions from graduate school into the professorate and some of the scholarly and public projects they're developing at their respective institutions. Their names are Dr. Robert Green II, Assistant Professor in History at Claflin University, and my other guest is Dr. Tyler D. Perry. Assistant Professor of African American and African Diaspora Studies at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Both Drs. Green and Perry are incredible examples of what scholarly integrity and kindness are. And they are both amazing graduates of the University of South Carolina's doctorate program in history. Welcome to the program, gentlemen. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I really enjoy it. Awesome. Awesome. And so before we get started, y'all, I just want to say both doctors, Green and Perry, and let me tell you, it's a little weird to call them that because these are like, you know, good buddies of mine. But, you know, for professional integrity, they're doctor for today. Um, and, you know, they're, they're like I said, they're incredible people and, and just really have been amazing friends, colleagues and confidants uh, since I really met both of them within the past uh, about two, two and a half years. And so uh, it's a pleasure to have them on the program. But, you know, just so you can get to know them a little bit, how about we ask a couple questions? Why history for both of you as a profession? Um, well, I guess I, I can start. Um, this is kind of an interesting question for me because I, I always feel a little bit left out when I answer this because a lot of historians give a a narrative that they've, they've always loved history, that they, they sat in the classroom and just read a bunch of books. Whereas for me, throughout my K through 12 education, I really didn't like history very much. I always thought it was one of the more boring classes that I took. I mean, I was good at it, but that was because I was relatively good at memorizing things. And I think it was at that point where I can pinpoint why I didn't like history as much and that the way it was being taught to me. The history that I seemed to most enjoy was whatever, you know, familial histories I received from relatives or parents or grandparents. And so little did I know that I actually did like history. It was just the formal way it was presented was something that was 
pushing me away from it. And so I really didn't discover my love for history until about my third year at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, where I got my my bachelor's degree, um, where I took a course called Comparative Slavery, and it just completely rocked my world. And it was from that point on, I started working with the professor and considering pursuing a degree in history. I mean, and at this point, I didn't even really know what it meant to get a doctorate in history. I was completely naive to the entire process. So I guess to keep the answer relatively short, it had everything to do with a dynamic professor teaching interesting material and presenting it in an accessible way so that a person like me who didn't know that they liked history actually was able to latch on to it and, and grow to love it and pursue it professionally. Hmm. Well, for me, uh, I, I actually am the stereotypical historian response to this question. Um, I, I loved history for most of my life, but there was a specific moment when I was about five years old when that love was really kindled. Um, so my father sat me down one night. He knew that I had been reading little kids' books on history and things like that. And he sat me down in 1991 and had me watch with him Glory, which was the 1989 film about the 54th Massachusetts Regiment. Um, and I was thoroughly riveted. And I think part of my love for history is my parents have always really kindled that interest in me. They've, they've certainly pushed me to read more, to think more, to write more. Uh, but, you know, like uh, Dr. Perry here, um, I didn't really think about getting a degree in history until maybe college. Um, and for me, the, the idea of getting a history degree was first really born when I took a course on African-American history uh, when I was in college at Georgia Southern University. And it was my sophomore year, and our professor actually had us write a book review. That was one of the assignments for the class. He gave us a list of books to choose from. And as I scanned the list, I noticed that there was a book by W.B. Du Bois I'd never heard of before. Uh, it was titled Black Reconstruction in America. And so uh, during office hours, I go to the professor and I say, this is the book I want to read. Not knowing anything about the book, I just knew it was Du Bois book I had not heard of before. And the professor looks at me. He says, Robert, are you sure you want to read Black Reconstruction? I said, yeah, I'm definitely sure. And he says, OK, all right. OK, fine. Go ahead and do it. And so I had to request a book from the library's um, off-site uh, system, storage system. And so I, I went to the library to get the book and my jaw dropped. I, I had never seen a book that big before. And I thought, oh, wow, I, I may have gone too far this time. But then I started reading it, started reading it some more. And then I got to the chapter titled The Propaganda of History where Du Bois talks about the need to use history to write against white supremacy, to write against inaccurate portrayals of the past. And that moment, a light bulb went off in my head and I said, I've got to do this for the rest of my life. I've got to find a way to become a historian. And ever since that moment, I have really been glued to learning more about the historical profession and trying to do my best to teach others what it means to actually do and write and research history. 
two very different responses to my question, uh, to, to say the least. Um, so, so, so with that, um, how did you both find USC as your doctoral granting institution? How did, well, t- t- really tell us about that process. Well, I'll, I'll go ahead and start for, for this question. Uh, for me, it was actually very simple. Um, I was, I knew by the end of my MA at Georgia Southern that I wanted to work at a place that had a strong emphasis on both Southern history and African-American history. And I knew that the University of South Carolina had a well-known reputation for that. And talking to professors at Georgia Southern, they were telling me, you should think about South Carolina amongst other places. And so I saw that at USC, you had folks like Bobby Donaldson, who specialized in African-American history, Marjorie Sproul, who became my dissertation advisor, who specializes in, in women's history and Southern political history. And it was really a, a strong lineup of, of scholars who look at race and ethnicity through many different time periods and many different uh, theoretical methodological lenses. So that's what really drew me to USC. Yeah, I actually have a a relatively similar experience um, with maybe a slight difference in that. Um, It was that class I took in my third year of the university where the professor Kevin Dawson, who I think you've you've had on this show before, he um he was the one that taught that class. And so as I became more immersed in the material, I was just incessantly bothering him during his office hours and I was just asking him all of these questions about what he did, how did he get to this point? Does he like his job? Would this be a good career? And then, you know, I asked him at some point, I'm like, do you think this is something I could do? And so he sat me down and he kind of took me through the entire process of what I would need to do to secure myself in the profession. And he told me that I might consider going to the University of South Carolina, which is where he did his doctoral work um, a few years before. And, you know, I'll be very honest. I'm from Las Vegas, Nevada. And the idea of traveling to South Carolina to pursue a doctoral degree, there was no innate prejudice I had. It was just it never entered my mind. I mean, most people out here tend to go to the UCs or to New York to do their doctoral work. And so it was kind of an interesting idea to me uh, to consider the University of South Carolina. So I just started looking at the faculty pages. And one thing I noticed is that Dan Littlefield, um, his research aligned with my own. And the university had just hired um, a scholar named Matt D. Childs, who wrote kind of one of the most critical books of a rebellion that happened in the island of Cuba in the early 19th century. And the benefit of working with uh, Dr. Childs, he was on my dissertation committee, is that he ensured that if I was going to be an Atlantic history scholar, that I couldn't just do the British Atlantic. So I was reading a lot of texts about Latin America and the Caribbean, as well as becoming very immersed in the literature of West Africa. And then I was also able to work with Mark Smith, um, who has this very unique approach to the study of history, um, probably one of the most foremost scholars looking at the senses in history and these creative ways that we can write about history and being imaginative within the entire process. So the University of South Carolina just spoke to me in that it seemed particularly well-suited to finding ways to give voice to the voiceless peoples in the historical record. So um, after I had looked up the faculty and applied and became accepted, I never looked back. It was the best decision I could have made. Outstanding, gentlemen. Outstanding. And so, you know, 
take us into your time in graduate school and, you know, what were some of the experiences that you had that you can say really helped to, you know, get you to where you are today? Not only, you know, the institution, but maybe some of the experiences or things that you were able to harness based upon the institution that you attended. Well, I think for me, um, it was, I think going to South Carolina in and of itself was an important step because history seemed very alive out there. And this might be particular to the time that I was there in that there are these markers, both Confederate and then progressive that are dotting the city of Columbia everywhere you go. And, you know, unless you know what to look for, sometimes you might just walk right past them. And so for me, going to graduate school, the University of South Carolina, it was, I think the benefit was getting involved in some of the community aspects of it and realizing the importance of history, not just for the sake of writing about it within the confines of the campus, but using your research to some degree to influence or to educate the community populace who probably needs it the most. So I think for me, it was, um, and you know, also I should say, I was married when I went into graduate school. So my experience was maybe a little different in that I was also trying to finish somewhat quickly because, you know, I had brought my wife out there and, you know, they had given me five years of funding and she had more, more or less told me that I needed, I had five years and then I, then then I had to get a job. So, (laughs) yeah. And so I made good on that promise, but for the, uh, the five years I was there, it became very, it became very important to me that I found ways to go beyond even just the history department. I was able to teach at the African-American studies program at the invitation of Linda Littlefield, who was the program coordinator at the time. And just to become involved in a lot of projects that had a much um, broader uh, reach than simply just writing a thesis or a term paper or even a dissertation. So I think I can only really speak to the uniqueness of going to graduate school in Columbia. Um, but for me, it was just the community engagement aspect was critical. I would certainly uh, agree with uh, Dr. Perry's sentiments there, especially on the community engagement. I know that so many professors who I work with at USC were involved in the community in some form or fashion. Um, but I also want to say that one of the things that really stood out for me during my time at USC was just the camaraderie of the department, um, a camaraderie that was between graduate students and faculty, but also amongst the graduate students themselves. And it was it was wonderful to work there because while both Perry and I were there, uh, we had a number of different reading groups that were going on. So for example, uh, there was the Atlantic World, Atlantic History Writing Group uh, that was really, really influential to me. Now, I, I wasn't doing um, Atlantic studies, so to speak. I, I was not working in that particular time period. I'm a 20th century Americanist. But it was still great for me to see a group of scholars come together outside of the classroom, outside of normal working hours to get together, read each other's papers, give uh, critiques on those papers and to really foster a sense of, again, as, as Dr. Perry mentioned, community. Um, I try to emulate that somewhat with an American history reading group as well. And in both groups, you had a lot of people who were driven, dedicated to not only the, the craft of, of writing history, but the craft of being 
good scholarly comrades in arms, so to speak. That really was, I think, for me, the biggest and best part of being at USC. Yeah, if I if I could add to that, I just wanted to to piggyback off of what Dr. Green was saying. Um, w- one thing you should know about him is that despite the fact that he's he's not an Atlanticist, he had the most consistent attendance in that group. So that shows you <laughs> his uh, his dedication to the cause there. But um, yeah, I mean, I got to the point where. I found my fellow graduate students' comments on my work as valuable as any other comments I would get throughout the profession. And so I think that the University of South Carolina, when uh, Dr. Green and I attended, it seemed uniquely well-suited in fostering that intellectual curiosity and support amongst graduate students that I think that if other places emulated, graduate students would be in a far better position. Well, maybe for those who might still be deciding, uh, is uh, USC the place for them? And the South Carolina one, not the California one. My family's from South Carolina. No disrespect. (laughs) Can't can't disrespect. Exactly. Uh, Try try living on the West Coast and saying you went to USC. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's like a Gamecock. What in the world is that? That's right. 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 Uh, (laughs) And so... You know, both of you uh, mentioned this uh, in different ways, but, you know, not only about the importance of USC in uh, really honing your skills as historians, uh, but but let's let's pivot a little bit to, you know, both of you are now professors, right? So that means you wrote a dissertation. So please talk to the audience about, you know, what was your dissertation experiences you know, like, and also how did you really overcome, you know, stagnation in the process? We have a lot of different folks here who are listening and many of them who, you know, maybe your, your, your experiences might be able to help them get through some of theirs. Right. Yeah. I I think with, with dissertation experience for me, it was, you know, a relatively good process. Now I do want to add the slight caveat that my bachelor's degree is actually in creative writing. And so I took some of those skills from my creative writing degree in terms of writing every day, at the very least getting something on paper every day. And that really helped me with the dissertation grind. But I think at at USC especially, it again helped to have this scholarly camaraderie of people who were really pulling for you, rooting for you, and also willing to give you constructive and useful feedback and criticism. That certainly helped me with my dissertation process. And I, I think for folks out there listening to this podcast right now, one of the things that will help you with a dissertation is, again, find that that community, uh, whether it's in the real world at your own institution, whether it's with other scholars from other departments, or if it's even virtual. Just having a support system of not only constructive but good feedback but also a system that'll hold you accountable too. So you have to get things in to folks forcing off to your advisor. You have to make sure you're, you're constantly writing whenever you can, you're doing the research, et cetera. Those are the kinds of things, developing good writing and researching habits that can really carry to the finish line when it comes to dissertation. Yeah, and I, I concur with, with everything that was stated. Um, there might be maybe two things I would add in that. For me personally, I had presented at a number of conferences by the time that I sat down to write my dissertation. And so that was useful because I had had what you might call rough drafts of different chapters written by that point. So it allowed me to just kind of 
add to add to it and build upon them. And I think honestly that made the process a lot easier because I think sometimes the hardest part of writing is starting it because if you're starting from scratch, you sometimes don't know where to go from there. And so uh, for me, I think it was just useful to have maybe some prototypes or models to build off of to, you know, take on the daunting task of writing uh, a long dissertation. Uh, the second thing is, is I want, I should think people should make sure that there's nothing wrong, you know, depending on your timeline, there's nothing wrong with, you know, detaching yourself from the dissertation for a few days and working on something else. Because one thing that does tend to happen is no matter how much you love your project, the writing process can lead to some significant burnout and you start to run out of ideas. Like you've become less creative, your writing is less passionate. And so sometimes what it takes is that you can work on maybe something else or, you know, an outline for a new idea. And that's perfectly acceptable because when you return to the dissertation, you'll have a new vigor to approach that particular project. And that's something I did on occasion when I was writing my dissertation for that last year I was in graduate school. Valuable, valuable, valuable information, y'all. Thank you so much for that. Thank you so much. And uh, before we uh, transition out of graduate school, talk to us about, you know, what was the most fun that you had in graduate school? What, what was, you know, let's let's end graduate school on a fun note in this way. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, well, I mean, I, I had a lot of fun in graduate school. I guess detaching it from just the university studies. I mean, some of the best times I had was just taking road trips out of town. Um, not always knowing where we're going, but I mean, living in Columbia, you had Greenville up the road and then Charleston, South Carolina down on the coastline. And so for me, I think it was just discovering the culture of the state and different cities and different areas throughout it. Um, and having some of the best seafood I've ever had in my life. So, I mean, I, I have, I have great memories of living in South Carolina, um, for those five years. And I think that was the most fun. And also, just hanging out with, with great colleagues who are interested in doing the same things because, you know, once you get into the real world, so to speak, you won't find a lot of people who are interested in talking about the same stuff that you do on, on a regular basis. So enjoy those moments in graduate school where you have a large body of graduate students who just want to talk about history all the time because that's harder to find once you get out of graduate school. I would definitely concur with uh, Dr. Perry in terms of the camaraderie and the comradeship that we experienced at USC. That was really the most fun for me was just having other people to talk to about history. In addition to that, I think some of the most fun I had in, in the graduate program here at USC was just getting to know so many good scholars, whether they were our professors or colleagues of mine in the program. It was just incredible to know how many folks were working on such fascinating topics of, of, of history. And it was such a broad set of interests as well. Um, finally, I would say that in terms of, of, of fun, um, I would say being able to hang out with my friends at, at various sporting events at USC. Now, the events themselves do not always turn out great in terms of the, the final <laughs> score, um, but it was still great to get to know them outside of the classroom, too, and to know that they had interests like me in, in a wide range of things like sports or in music. Again, I, I, like Dr. Perry said, 
you should embrace those moments in graduate school while you can, because after it's over, you may not have those same opportunities again or not as much as you'd like. There we go. And so now as we uh, transition from graduate school into the profession, um, talk about that experience for both of you, because, you know, you're both at um, different institutions. One for you, uh, Dr. Green, still in South Carolina. And for you, Dr. Perry, you're, you know, you're at uh, UNLV. And so, you know, very different spaces. And so talk to us about, you know, your transition and, you know, from the graduate school experience into the profession. Well, um, I think that the University of South Carolina's graduate program did a pretty good job of preparing us for what to actually expect in the profession. Um, I think they they did a, a service in that they weren't sugarcoating the expectations. I mean, it was pretty standard to know that you'll have to get your book out within five to six years. You'll probably have to write a few articles along the way. They'll ask you to do service, um, particularly if you're a scholar involved in black studies. Um, you get asked to do a lot of service. Um, and, you know, it's hard to say no because you're trying to invest in the community and you're trying to build up people um, who want that that particular knowledge. So, and then of course you have the teaching responsibilities as well, which can be different depending on the institution that you're at. And so I feel that um, the transition into the profession was not as much of a shockwave because I had an idea as to what might be expected of me at that point. And so, I mean, one piece of advice that people gave me that I think, um, I think was pretty good was to have an article submitted in your last year of graduate school that could be forthcoming by the time you get hired somewhere. Um, and so, because that will, that could count uh, for tenure if that that's something people are concerned about. So um, I think the transition of the profession was essentially that there might be a higher expectation, but as long as your particular department prepares you for the reality of what you're facing, I think you can handle it. And now one thing I should also say is that the University of South Carolina we were actually taught a lot as TAs. And so I didn't have as much of a shock when I came into the profession having to balance teaching service and research because that was something that we were already doing at the University of South Carolina anyway. And so every semester we'd have upwards of 90 students who we were responsible for leading in discussions and then grading as well. So whereas, you know, some programs or departments I hear don't have that type of expectation for TA ships or teaching. So I think that it was a more realistic way of introducing graduate students to the profession because you already had to balance your writing process with a relatively high expectation in your TA ship. That was definitely the same experience for me um, in terms of being a teaching assistant and also having to balance all of that with with writing and research. Now, my my path to my current position at Clapton is a little different in the sense that I actually received an offer for a visiting uh, position while I was finishing my dissertation in the fall of 2018. Um, and, and frankly, that was that was a godsend uh, because it really helped me get over the finish line. It gave me something to look forward to. Um, but also, you know, as Dr. Perry just said, 
you know, at USC, we were really given a lot of good advice on what to expect on the job market, what to expect once we've received an offer for a job, and how to really execute as professionals. Um, it, it's a great department in terms of professionalization, I think we're both basically saying. And for me, I was not too surprised by what the teaching load would be like at Claflin. Um, and certainly it has been a relatively smooth transition. Um, and it's been one that, frankly, I've been very thankful for. Yeah, no, and it's really interesting is, you know, like you said, both both your experiences are a uh, little, little different and uh, where you ended up too. And to get there though, you know, the amount of focus and, and and sometimes luck and 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 blessings, all these different things are are included. Um, but but one thing that I don't want to lose sight of that I want y'all to talk about a little as well. Both of y'all are very well published, right, in different spaces, and that takes a lot of focus and that takes a lot of discipline. And so, tell us about some of your practices on how do y'all. How do y'all stay consistent with your writing, right? I know, Robert, you had mentioned being, uh, you know, your your creative writing background, but speak to us a bit about the craft of writing for both of you and, and what practices and, and um, things that y'all implement into your daily life to make sure that you hit your goals. I think that's something that a lot of people would love to learn about. Well, I think for me, the, the first, my first rule of writing is that the fun actually happens with editing and revising. Um, so to actually get to that point, you have to get something on the page. Now, a lot of writers will tell you that regardless of what profession they're in, whether they're journalists or whether they're academic writers or, or what have you, they'll tell you that you got to write something every single day. Now, not every writer lives by that mantra, but most writers, most consistent writers are able to do that. Um, I will say that each week I try to set some goals that I want to reach by the end of the week in terms of how many words I've written on whichever project I'm working on that particular week. I won't say it always happens, but I try to do my best to make sure I'm writing every single day, getting something on the page that I can go back and revise later. And oftentimes a lot of that writing takes place either in my office, um, at Claflin, or I'll try to get some writing done when I get home. Now, writing at home is, is a bit harder for me because I have to make a a constant commute every day, Monday through Friday. Uh, but I, I will say this too with writing, take breaks. Dr. Perry just mentioned during dissertation writing process, he took breaks. It is important to take breaks to give your mind some time to relax and to also give yourself some time to really contemplate what you're writing about and why you're writing it. I think those are some tips that I just want to offer right off the bat. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, and I agree with that. Um, maybe add a couple of things to that. Uh, I, I think it is important to maybe find a writing space in different areas to where you feel comfortable. Lately, I've actually been doing really well at coffee shops. And this is, you know, part of this is because now I have two small children and I just can't write at home anymore. 
it's just impossible. And so I, I actually do have to find places where I actually can sit down basically turn off the world and just become part of the project and just sit down and write. Um, I've actually never been particularly good at writing every day. Um, it's not that I don't write very often, but there are times where life happens. And so I do sometimes fail <laughs> at writing every day. But um, one thing that has helped me, and, and this goes back to what I was mentioning earlier about beginning the process of writing, is typically, I think, and I think this is maybe unique to historical writing, is that we go through so many sources, all of which are so fascinating, all of which deserve all of our attention. But I go through them and I select about five that I really want to focus on initially when I'm writing a chapter. And then I'll select one and write it out as a vignette to begin the chapter. Now, maybe that vignette will stay as the, the premier vignette or maybe it won't. But if I can find at least one source where I feel like I can build my argument around something that would fascinate a reader, it then makes it a lot easier for me to actually start writing because now I'm in a groove. I mean, writing is just, it's as much a exercise as anything physical that we do. It, it all depends upon how committed we are and how interested we are in the process at that point. So for me, what's become useful as far as starting the process of writing is actually finding a particular source that is particularly interesting and then going from there. And then later on, if something else pops up that seems to be um, seems to relate more to the material, then I, you know, I take the liberty to switch it out. But at least at that point, I have maybe 10 pages written at that point. And, you know, just for mental clarity and mental support, that 10 pages makes a lot of difference for continuing writing because now I feel invigorated to continue the process and I feel like I've accomplished something. Very good. And so I do that as a segue because we've been talking a lot about USC and now we're going to transition into not only University of South Carolina, but the University of South Carolina Press because y'all have a edited volume coming out. And so can we talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, sure. So the edited volume is uh, tentatively, tentatively titled The African-American Experience at the University of South Carolina. And essentially, it provides the long history of African-Americans who have been on the grounds of the University of South Carolina since the school was uh, first, uh, first uh, instituted in 1801. Um, and Essentially, the University of South Carolina is unique in this regard because not only were there enslaved people upon the campus in the 19th century, but black men also attended the school during the period of Reconstruction in the 1870s. And also black women who were being trained for the normal institutes were also on the, the campus grounds, though they weren't official students of the university. And then, of course, um, after Reconstruction, is dismantled, um, you know, African Americans are forced to leave the campus. But one thing that we're exploring in that kind of interim moment before the second desegregation is how African Americans were resisting this effort. They were applying and demanding to come back onto the campus and 
become students again. And then, of course, in 1963, this the school desegregates again. And then we're kind of looking at what happens beyond that moment. So that's kind of the the brief um, the brief synopsis of what the volume is looking at. But um, and and Robert can certainly add to this. But I'll just say briefly that this volume comes out of efforts during 2013, where the African American Studies Program put on a symposium that was commemorating the 50th anniversary of the desegregation in 1963 and the 140th anniversary of the first desegregation uh, during the Reconstruction period. And the efforts that came through that was that a number of students, uh, Dr. Green and I uh, included among them, were asked to develop projects that looked at some of these moments. And so I happened to be researching the Reconstruction students, and I believe uh, Dr. Green was looking at the students who were submitting applications during Jim Crow. So if you want to add to that, uh, Dr. Green, you can go ahead. Oh, certainly. Yes, uh, that's exactly what our project was about. And at that desegregation symposium back in 2013, a lot of the folks who were there who came list to our papers were, quite frankly, astounded at just how rich African-American history was at USC. And this is actually, our our project is part of what I like to think of as this larger trend of people outside of South Carolina, and many times also inside the state too, getting to learn more about the state's rich and complicated history. Um, Just about a year or two ago, uh, Columbia actually, two years ago now, I believe, hosted a um, Urban History Association conference. It was the first time it had been held in Columbia. And many of the scholars I spoke there, I spoke to there mentioned that they did not really know much about South Carolina's history. They were certainly stunned to find out, for example, that there were African-American students at USC during the Reconstruction period. Our project also really ties into what you've seen in recent years across the country in terms of historians and other scholars of the humanities trying to push universities to talk more about the histories of enslavement at their institutions. And I think certainly USC is unique in that regard because we not only have a history of of slaves at the university, but as uh, Dr. Perry mentioned a moment ago, we also have a moment in, in the reconstruction period where we had free black students also attending as well. This is the kind of history that, I think both of us really enjoy delving into a history that we both hope will be better known after our project is completed, but certainly a history that also helps to explain so much about South Carolina and the United States today. Again, as as Tyler mentioned a moment ago, our project doesn't just end with 1963. It also goes um, to the 1970s, 1980s in terms of how, and this is a story that I think is not emphasized enough how African-Americans adjust to being in these predominantly white spaces. Um, It's a story that it's not easy to talk about, but it's worth talking about now, especially because it was only about five or six years ago that we had Black Lives Matter protests on college campuses across the country, where many, including USC, where African-American students were saying, we don't feel as though we are a part of this campus community. That needs to be fixed, needs to be fixed immediately. So certainly our project is really trying to touch into all these different trends you're seeing in in scholarship, but also hopeful at the same time that we can 
set some new trends and set some new frameworks for folks to, to work with at their own universities or, or other campuses. Yeah, and, and I'll just add that the uniqueness of this particular project um, is one of the reasons why we've decided to pursue publishing this edited volume, because during the 2013 symposium, there was some effort made to you know, get these commemorative papers published in a volume, but it never materialized. And so as I was thinking about this a few years ago, I was looking at some of the old material I had been reviewing for that symposium. And I just started thinking to myself, I said, there's no other story quite like this out there. This needs to actually become a tangible item that people can read and access. And so out of the blue, I, I emailed uh, Dr. Green. And I said, Hey, I know you're busy, but how about uh, you join me on this effort to get this edited volume compiled and let's see what we can make of it. And, you know, a year and a few months later, uh, th all the contributors are currently writing their chapters and our book proposal is about done and we're looking forward to submitting it to a press soon. So it's just one of those narratives that both of us believe needs to be out there. And as Dr. Green said, um, we think it could really spark some new ways of viewing the black presence and higher education in the United States. And uh, definitely cannot wait to have y'all both on the uh, the podcast again to discuss it because, uh, as you know, I'm always uh, always looking for, for for new opportunities to discuss with y'all. You, you you remember that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> we'll we'll be contacting you. <laughs> hey hey, it's like hey, I'm, I'm with us. Ho ho hopefully, there's a book on the other side of that too. So oh, yeah, for sure, <laughs> for sure, definitely. <laughs> And uh, speaking of books, um, one of the things that is very interesting about both of you that that I really appreciate is both of you are very, very prolific and also that you're not only very prolific, but you're very kind people, kind enough that, to allow me to even write book reviews for different places. <laughs> um, so 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 for, for so to start with, for you, Dr. Perry, um, tell us about your your experiences a uh, book review editor for uh, Black Perspectives through the African-American Intellectual History Society. Yeah, I mean, I, I've really enjoyed it, though I, though I have to admit that it was a bit of a baptism by fire when I first entered it, because um, one thing about reviewing for a blog, and I think Dr. Green could probably speak on this as well, is that because it's kind of a rolling publication, there's not issues necessarily like, you know, quarterly publications is that I had to figure out at what point I cap my, my capacity for publishing reviews because, you know, now that black studies is becoming much more prolific in the profession, I get sent a lot of different books, some of which relate, some of which don't. But, you know, I, initially I felt this obligation that I just had to, you know, publish all of these reviews, but that became nearly impossible. So, but one thing I've really enjoyed about reviewing for black perspectives is seeing the reviewers write for a much broader audience and relating the material to kind of real life circumstances because they have to write for those who subscribe to Black Perspectives or at least follow us on Twitter or other social media because they're not going to be as interested in the historiography. That's not 
particularly important to them. So one thing I try to encourage reviewers to do is to make it a narrative, make it interesting, make it something that would be fascinating for just a lay reader to to read. And so one that's one nice thing about um, being the editor for Black Perspectives. And, you know, the entire team of editors at Black Perspectives is incredibly supportive. So if I find myself getting behind, somebody's there to always, always help me out and assist me. But I think it's, it's been a unique experience being the book review editor for a blog. And, you know, it's helped me kind of find other people to collaborate with such as you, Adam. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're, we're always happy. We're always happy to have people solicit us to write a review. That is that is always welcome. Hmm. So, Dr. Perry, are you saying that uh, graduate students can solicit you based upon this interview to review some of their favorite books? Is that what you're saying? Graduate students are most welcome. They are among my most consistent and enthusiastic reviewers. So always feel free to contact me. Very good. Very good. And so uh, you you as well, Dr. Green, you ha- are a very well-published person, especially based upon your bylines on your nearly uh, uh, 10,000 person followed and maybe even bot followed um, <laughs> Twitter page. <laughs> <laughs> and so t- tell us about some of your experiences uh, uh, blogging and, and, and also writing for different audiences. What what does that mean for you to do, especially as someone who's been through graduate school and early in the profession with literally the transition of blogging as a particular thing that people might have not looked highly upon now? It's something that's actually very significant. Well, for me, a lot of my experiences with writing actually began with the Society of U.S. Intellectual Historians. Um, back in 2013, they allowed me to do a guest run for their blog, and then I became a, a blogger for them full time shortly afterwards. Today, I actually serve as their book reviews editor. I have served in that position for several years now. And like like Dr. Perry has mentioned, uh, it has been an enriching experience for me. And I can tell you that the Society of U.S. Intellectual, Intellectual Historians is also looking for reviewers as well. We always want new book reviewers and we always want book reviewers with fresh perspectives and fresh ideas. Now, for me, the the writing experience has gone part and parcel with my experience in social media, especially uh, Facebook and Twitter. But uh, you both have already mentioned uh, what it means to be a prolific writer. Um, But there is something to be said about learning how to write for different audiences, too. Uh, So I have, for example, I've written extensively for places like the Nation um, or Descent Magazine or, or Jacobin. Um, I just today on, on February 28th, I had a piece come out in the Washington Post about the primary here in South Carolina. Um, but all those different writing experiences have actually been very enriching for me because they've taught me how to hone my voice, how to write concisely and really how to write for a broad audience. Um, it's, it's always a fun experience to write for such an audience. Um, I enjoy writing academic work. You know, I have scholarly articles also published and I'm working on a couple right now, as a matter of fact. But I, I think what's really interesting about the writing process is writing things for such a broad audience. I, I think the example that always stands out to me was um, what happened back in June of 2015. We had the, the massacre in Charleston. And the day after, I was asked by Politico to write a piece about um, 
Mother Emanuel Church and the importance of that particular event. Now, that was the hardest writing project I'd ever taken on because, to be quite frank, I was still grieving. Um, I was still thinking about the folks who were killed in that church. I was still thinking about the heartache their families felt. I was still thinking about what it meant to be black in America at a time like that. But I also knew it was a story that folks had to know. It was a story that had to be told immediately. And so I, I wrote that piece back in 2015. And it's still one of the pieces that I, I'm most proud of. But I think with, with writing overall, it, it's always gratifying to know that when you're spending time writing, um, which is often a solitary process, you know that at the other end, there's an audience waiting to to learn more from you. And the hope is once they read your piece, they'll, they'll go out and learn more about that particular topic. And, and for, for both of you, both of you are so prolific. There's so many things that are going on around. A lot of people, you know, a lot of people may wonder, like, do y'all still get scared during the writing process? Do you still, you know, if you're still writing and, you know, you have your architecture around, you know, that you usually go to, to, to build your work. Do you, are there still, and this is for both of you, are there times where writing is ever still scary? Yes. Um, w- without question, because the biggest enemy uh, for any writer, any historian, scholar, period, who has to work with the written word is the blank page. And so whenever I'm starting something new, there's always that sense of trepidation. Can I actually get this done? Am I the right person to write this piece? But once I start banging computer keys, then I know it's time to get to work. And so I, I think for any writer, whoever, wherever they come from, whatever their background is, they're going to tell you it is a it is a, a process full of fear, but that fear is going to push you to work harder, to be more diligent in your research, more diligent in your editing, and most of all, to be diligent in not being afraid to get those pieces done and get them out to people. Uh, yeah, and to add to that, I think that people just have to be comfortable writing on their own terms and not allow others to dictate what they write or how they write. Because one thing you've mentioned is that both Dr. Green and I tend to, we both do our peer-reviewed articles, and but we've also published in various more popular venues. And, you know, there's a split in the profession on this, but I think, you know, maybe a younger generation of scholars seems to be more apt to support younger researchers getting the word out through, you know, pieces from the Washington Post or through Jacobin or through Dissent um, or through writing for, through Black Perspectives or the Society of U.S. Intellectual Historians. And so, you know, the, the profession has to recognize that peer review is important. I mean, I, I, I have no doubt about that. But I find that there is this unusual um, – process in which people are criticizing younger scholars for spending too much time writing pieces in newspapers and whatnot. And I don't think that's fair as, because we're all trying to work through our, our own um, way through the profession. And so I think there's certainly a, a fear that goes along with it. But one thing that has happened to me is 
I've written some pieces for Black Perspectives or for the Washington Post that eventually became peer-reviewed articles. So to some degree, those 1,200-word essays that I wrote would then become 10,000-word peer-reviewed articles. So I think it's just we all have to find our own way in which we write, and we have to be comfortable in just asserting ourselves within the process and not allowing others to derail our own confidence. Most definitely, most definitely. And so also as writers for the public, what does what does that do for you? Like, how does it feel knowing that your piece that will come out in the Washington Post or Descent or these other venues, that those are the ones that are that can actually move culture around and to actually you not only gain traction for you and maybe the institution that you and the department that you work for, but also maybe even what it means for you to have a family member read your own work and they're not at, in academia at all. And they're like, whoa, they'll call you Tyler or call you Robert. And like, that's, that's really cool. You know, everything about that too? No, this is, this is uh, exactly, exactly what I was, I was thinking as well in that, you know, in, in the profession of history or really any other profession, there's always the gold standard journals that everybody wants to publish in. But, you know, no one else in my family is an academic. They don't really care about, you know, if I publish in the Journal of American History or the Journal of Southern History or Past and Present. That doesn't mean as much to them. I mean, they're just happy that I published something, but they don't quite understand the weight behind it. But if they read something that I published in the Washington Post, I mean, that's very recognizable to them. And so they're thinking, wow, Tyler published in the Washington Post. His voice or his writing is being read by thousands of people at this moment. I'm so proud of him. And so I, I think it's, it goes back to this idea of writing on our own terms and what makes us most fulfilled. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think um, there's writing for the profession and then writing for maybe personal you know, satisfaction as well. And I think you can find a way to blend both. Yeah, I will, I will definitely tag along with that, that analysis. And certainly whenever I publish a piece that is for public consumption, especially, I always get to throw my parents read it or when my, my aunts and uncles or my cousins read it. Um, such a, such a thing where you get to see how your work is seen by other people that you care about people whose opinions you care about that keeps me going as a writer and as a, as a story as well. Not to say that they don't appreciate some of the pieces I, I may publish in like a scholarly journal, like a book review or a journal article or a book chapter. But as I've joked before with friends of mine, it is one thing to, to see something you've written being a magazine sold at Barnes and Noble. I mean, that that's just a, a kind of a cool thing to think about um, or to see it at a place like the Washington post. And so it, it is, it is fun to think about how our writing does really get folks involved in history who aren't in the academy. And another another very quick aside here, I, I do think when we talk about how we engage with the public, um, I sometimes think about the fact that our public does include the classroom, the classrooms that we're working in and, and teaching in. And when our students see that we actually publish in these places, uh, it it kind of gets them to pay attention a little bit more because they're thinking, oh, wait, this this person actually does stuff besides just, just teach me or talk about these things in our classes. They also write about these topics and think about them pretty well as well. So I think 
there's a lot of joy that really comes um, at the end of the writing process. It doesn't begin joyfully. Uh, it begins with a lot of hard work, but it is it is a process that you know has its own rewards. Absolutely. And and one of the things that we can't let y'all get out of here without talking about all of this great scholarly productivity, all of this, you know, all these different bylines and all of these different editorial positions and, and, and all that. Let's talk about the actual institutions that you serve at now. Right. Let's talk about what it means to do all of the work that you do. One being at HBCU, but also working at you know, different teaching institutions and minority serving institutions while also doing all of the work that you do too. Tell us about the experience of being able to balance all of the different commitments that you have while also teaching at the particular kind of institution that you presently are, but also have been at in the past. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think working at Claflin University has been an enriching experience for me. Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, Claflin University is an HBCU located in Orangeburg, South Carolina. Is actually one of the oldest HBCUs in the country. It was founded in 1869. So we just finished celebrating our 150th anniversary last year. Um, but Claflin is also a teaching institution. So um, many of the professors there, including myself, have what we call full teaching loads, where I'm teaching four, four classes every semester. Uh, and I'm on campus Monday through Friday because I have at least one or two classes a day, Monday through Friday. Now, to balance all of that with writing, it's not it's not easy. And this is why I mentioned earlier uh, the fact that I sometimes write in my office. Now, that's not always easy because I may have students coming by. I may have meetings during the day. But I do find being able to work in a space like that dedicated to history, dedicated to my profession, really helps me get the gears turning in terms of what I want to write about. Also, just seeing my students every day and talking to them about history, whether it's African-American history or American history or European or Latin American history, these kinds of conversations really push me to continue to do the work that I do outside of the classroom. So, for example, uh, just today we had a conversation in my Civil War Reconstruction class about uh, the book An Army Army Life in a Black Regiment by Thomas uh, Hentworth, uh, Hentworth Higginson. And the students had some great comments and great questions about the book, uh, asking questions about what it meant for black men in the 1860s to be serving in the Union Army, uh, what it meant for white abolitionists to even have uh, what they referred to as paternalistic views on race and racism in American society. Uh, And it was the kind of conversation that I enjoyed having with my students because most of the students at Claflin are, A, from South Carolina. B, they're African-American, and C, many of them are first-generation college students. And so when you teach these students at an HBCU like Claflin, you get a sense of what it means to be part of this rich Black educational tradition that has really tried to make a way for generations of African-Americans since emancipation. You, you feel that in the air at Claflin every single day. And I, I certainly take that as a serious challenge to try to answer every single day. Yeah. And just to add to that. So my, my first two jobs, the profession, one was at California State University Fullerton, which was my first job. And now I'm at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Both of them are very similar in that both 
are uh, deemed minority serving institutions, specifically Hispanic serving institutions. Both are state public schools and both have students that are predominantly commuter students, first generation underrepresented groups. And so speaking specifically of the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, I mean, one thing that it has allowed me to do teaching students who typically work long hours while attending class is that I have to make a decision as to the type of faculty member I want to be or the type of educated I want to be. And so kind of this old school kind of dogmatic, you have to be on time or you get no credit for the day doesn't quite work um, in the modern era simply because a lot of these students are doing what they can simply to just make it work. A lot of them have familial responsibilities. A lot of them are usually coming to and from work. A lot of them are from uh, the Las Vegas Valley. So a lot of these state-funded institutions um, throughout the United States, but specifically in the West that I've noticed, are filled with students who have a great desire to learn, but there are understandable roadblocks. And so it takes faculty members to be understanding in that and to try to out a way to where we are available for them because you can tell they're excited to learn the information. But in regards to, I think, balancing a lot of these things, I mean, one thing I will say about being made available for both students and the community is that I must admit the students and the community members who once they get an idea as to what I do, they are some of the most enthusiastic individuals that I'll ever meet. Like I just did a radio program this morning in Las Vegas, and it was probably one of the most fun conversations I've ever had, just simply because these were individuals who loved uh, accumulating knowledge and they loved talking about it. I mean, and this was like a narrative of empowerment and, you know, how people can invest in communities and, and you know, elevate people. And so I think, um, you know, if we shut ourselves off from service too much, I mean, it's understandable because some people protect their time. But I mean, for me, some of the most fulfilling experiences I have is when I, you know, go outside of the classroom or outside of my, you know, my writing, and I just engage with people, whether it be students outside the classroom or just community members who have a hunger for knowledge. I just want to quickly add to that, too. Um, I think a lot of historians worry that the United States right now is a place that is that has a historical wasteland and people just don't care about history. But I think both Dr. Perry and myself have found that actually that's further, that can be further from the truth. A lot of folks that we talk to at, you know, in our classrooms, that we talk to at events in the community, they generally want to know more about America's past and, and the world's past for that matter. And so I'm always heartened by those conversations that, that Dr. Perry just mentioned that you have outside of the academy, outside of campuses. There are a lot of folks who are dying to know more, and we have to find a way to reach them however we can. Yeah, I agree. Exceptional. Exceptional. And for, for, for both of you, before we before we depart, can you both talk to us about some of the projects that you have coming up? Right. So we already talked about the editor volume, but what are, what other things are, can can really our listeners, along with, you know, the hosts as well, you know, host privilege. Uh, what, what can the hosts among everyone else know about what we can look forward to for your return trip 
to new books in African American studies. Uh, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll be I'll be relatively brief. I, I appreciate the time to talk about this, though. Um, so my, my first book uh, is contracted with the University of North Carolina Press, and it's entitled "Jumping the Broom: The Surprising Multicultural Origins of a Black Wedding Ritual," and if everything goes as it should, it should be out in the fall um, of this year. Um, and this project is something I've been working on for a decade or so off and on. And so I'm happy that it'll finally be uh, in print. So that's one to look forward to for me in the immediate future. But as some people might know, I'm also working on a project that looks at the use of canines as a form of racialized terror, uh, in the Americas, and I'm co-authoring that with a scholar named Charlton Yingling at the University of Louisville. We just had an article come out in the journal Past and Present, which is free and open access so anybody can read it, but we are working on the larger manuscript, which we hope to complete within a year or year and a half from now. Well, for me, uh, right now, I'm, I'm finishing up and a book chapter for an edited collection on journalism and Jim Crow. Um, it's actually a book chapter looking at African-American responses to the rise of the so-called Mississippi plan, the 1870s and 1880s, essentially the plan to disenfranchise hundreds of thousands of African-American voters across the South during an African reconstruction period. Uh, so that's one project I'm working on. Um, currently I'm, I'm planning on revising dissertation, of course, and really working on a proposal about that. Now, for those who don't know, my dissertation really focuses on African-American voters in the Democratic Party in the Deep South in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, essentially trying to understand how Democrats were trying to hold on to those black voters in an era where nationally the Democratic Party was suffering some pretty serious losses um, at the hands of a much more conservative Republican Party. Um, also, I, I have... Uh, various pieces I'm working on for uh, different publications right now. But those are really the, the big projects I'm working on. So stay tuned. And definitely stay tuned because uh, let me tell you about this brother, Dr. Robert Green II. He is probably one of the most humble people. But anytime I see him, hey, I, I, I got to gas his brother up, you know. I, got, I always got to gas his brother up too, and, and, and Dr. Tyler D. Perry as well. You know, he—he's—you he, know—he's a little—he's a little—he's still humble, but you know, not not Rob, not not Dr. Green level, but uh, you know, he's on a different level. Yeah, he, yeah, he is, he is, he is. But uh, you know, uh, I definitely, uh, I definitely love these brothers. Like they're really good people, and um, it, it's been a really uh, a beautiful blessing over the last two years. Uh, to to get to know both of them, and uh, also to know that we, you know, we all three of us can share a South Carolina connection because my family's just down the street in Dalesdale and in the Sumter area, and so, um, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And so, once again, folks, I am your host Adam McNeil, host of New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network, and today we have had the great opportunity of of having Dr. Robert Green the second assistant professor in history at Claflin University, and his colleague in arms, Dr. Tyler D. Perry, assistant professor of African-American and African diaspora studies at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And like I told y'all from the beginning, they're amazing examples of scholarly integrity and kindness. And I hope, too, 
once I get to that other side to be just like them. <laughs> they, 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 they presented a good foundation. They presented a good foundation. So, so once again, folks, I'm your host, Adam McNeil, New Books in African American Studies. It's been a pleasure and an honor once again. Over and out. <laughs>